0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz bassist, composer, and educator Jeff Denson. He spent his childhood in Arlington, Virginia, and dug his mother's love of the Beatles, and then discovered R&B, especially Stevie Wonder, James Brown, and Marvin Gaye. He went on to the Berklee College of Music, Florida State University, and well beyond to get his jazz education. And it's a deep one. But it was a chance encounter with Miles Davis's Kind of Blue that got his jazz world vaulted into orbit. These days, he is promoting his 2016 CD concentric circles, and to date has 11 albums as a leader and co-leader, and over a dozen more as a featured sideman, with the likes of Lee Konitz and many others. So get to know Jeff and dig this interview, my friends.
1: Wonderful. Hey, Jeff, thank you for taking a little time out for me today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for the interest. Absolutely. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off here. You're you're real clear about what's going on with your music world, but in your own words, tell me what's going on with you lately.
2: I'm extraordinarily busy and doing different things. Just to give you an example, um, I, I'm a full professor at the California Jazz Conservatory. I have a very busy teaching load, and I'm busy performing around the bay, touring in the U.S. and internationally as well. Mainly my focus these days is on leading my own groups, but uh, I still do some sideman work. Like For example, last week I did a tour in California with the Joel Harrison Spirit House featuring Kung Vu on trumpet, Paul Hansen on bassoon and Brian Blade on drums. That was fantastic. We performed in San Francisco at SF Jazz, in San Jose at uh, at the Art Boutique, and then the Angel City Jazz Festival in Los Angeles, and Dizzy's in San Diego. And I flew back from San Diego to Oakland, took the train to the conservatory and taught all day. I taught throughout the week, and then Friday I performed my East Bay CD release concert with my quartet. Um, in Berkeley, and at the end of this coming month, the end of November, I'm flying to Europe, and I'm performing with the Jeff Denson Trio plus Lee Konitz in Finland, Germany, and the Netherlands. I stay pretty busy.
1: Yeah, that's a full bar. Yeah, so the one thing that you did touch on is your, uh, your fifth album as a leader, Concentric Circles. Talk to me about this album. How do you feel about it in the afterglow, and what are you doing to promote it? well
2: I feel really happy with the with the album um I've got a great group of people to work with, and you know they they really enjoy working on the music as a group which with every everybody is so busy these days it's you know it's it's hard to find the group of people that are that are willing able and excited to work on a project these guys are and um what I've done to promote it thus far, aside from you know the press campaigns, I've been doing CD release concerts in California. Uh, the first one was in July in San Jose, and in August I did one in San Francisco. Then September I was up in Napa, and um, and then this month, October, I was in Berkeley. But then also in August. Uh, before the San Francisco date, I, I played a CD release concert in Baltimore, Maryland, and then uh, one in Washington, D.C. So I guess it was that order. San Jose, Baltimore, Washington, San Francisco, uh, Napa, Berkeley. And then um, next month, or a couple months, I'm headed out east, uh, east California, eastern California, to do some shows.
1: Well, your answer there kind of follows my pattern of what I want to talk to you about. You grew up in Arlington, Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C. You know, you're talking a lot about California. You live there, you teach there, you perform there. What mm-hmm. has it been, what, has it been what, was it, what was your childhood like that lent you to get to a point where not only you're on the West Coast now making your music life, but what did you learn growing up about music that was so good and foundational to, to make you who you are today?
2: I would say that working and in, in playing music for the vast majority of my life, um, I guess it really showed me that it was okay to think abstractly, you know, to think outside the box. My, my parents were not musicians. My father actually was a Marine for 30 years, and, but he always wanted to be a musician, but for, you know, his, his life, he couldn't, he couldn't be one because he wasn't able to. And long story, but he would, both of my parents were very supportive of, of what I did because it was very clear that I had like an, an undying passion for it. There was really no stopping me and, and they were really supportive. I'm trying to answer your question the best I can. Um, Music it showed me I could imagine things. I could hear things in my head, and if I worked hard enough, I could, I could bring those things to fruition, and like, bring what I was imagining into the, the world. Though music is an interesting, interesting art form where it, it like, you know, it dissipates the minute you you play it; it goes away, you know, unless you record it. But it's an abstract art form, you know, even more than I would say even other arts because it. It's it's in the air and then it it goes goes away just as fast as you make it. Does that make any sense?
1: That's totally. I love that answer. That 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 is a a very telling visual of 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 the art form that you're in. And I mean, it's ironic because the power of music is so ever present. It's the one language that everyone on earth can actually connect with. But it's gone so quick. Mm-hmm. Um, It's vaporous, but it's enormously meteoric in its impact on us, so that is very interesting. Um, So, you know, your trajectory into where you are as a bass player today started with the alto sax, made its way to the the bass, and you're a composer as well. Talk to me a little bit about your music evolution.
2: Still to this day, I I don't know why. I, I came home one day when I was in third grade, so I must have been around eight years old, and... I told my mom I wanted to play alto saxophone. Uh, we didn't have band in school, so I, I really don't know where this idea came from. And it just so happened my mom worked with uh, a woman who majored in music or something at, at one time, so she had a saxophone and we, we rented it from her, and, uh, or we bought it from her. And I took lessons, and then ultimately when we moved, I moved around as a kid. Ultimately, I landed in a school where there was a band, and so I, I did that from third grade up until high school. And um, my dog...
1: Knows.
2: Your dog concurs.
1: Yeah, he likes it, so. <laughs>
2: um Yeah, so I did that up until high school, and then I took two years... You know, I, I didn't play music, you know, my freshman and sophomore year. But the thing is, ever since I was a small kid... You know, I played saxophone, but I always sang. I sang along with the radio. I sang anything that I heard, I would sing. And so in high school, there was no, that was no different. And so anybody that hung out with me inevitably would hear me singing with something. And then, so all my friends started creating bands, and they all needed singers. And so I I started singing in some bands in my high school, and it turned out they also needed a bass player, and at the time... I was listening to music with interesting bass players, so I thought, wow, that might be cool. they need a bass player, I'll do that too. I added electric bass to what I was doing, and then I was playing very quickly. (laughs) I was trying to figure out how to play the bass and and sing at the same time, and I was in these uh, different groups in school. But um, from there, someone introduced me to Jaco Pastorius and Stanley Clark, their music anyway. I, I heard the music, and... That you know, started to open the rabbit hole. You know, I I heard that and thought, wow, this this is something else. I, I got to check more of this music out. And that led me to Miles, to Miles Davis, and I decided I wanted to rent a double bass. So I would I started trying to learn to play double bass. And after hearing Charles Mingus' Haitian Fight Song, I I thought, okay, I absolutely have to commit to this instrument because this I can't do this. I couldn't make those kind of sounds on any other. Instrument have to be the double bass. From that point on, I really fell down the rabbit hole. I was focused really intensely on my bass playing and my double bass playing. I traveled around a lot. So right after high school, I went to Richmond, Virginia for two years where I was studying visual arts. And that's, that's really down there is when I started playing the double bass and slowly was taking more and more music and less art and so then i went back home to the dc area and went to community college for a while and and then was offered a scholarship to go to berkeley college of music and when i went to berkeley i kind of closeted my singing and my electric bass playing for the time being and pursued double bass i guess when i went back to the dc area before going to berkeley i I was really focused intensely on, on my playing. And the second year I was back home, I started supporting myself playing music. I was playing in a community orchestra. I played four to five jazz gigs a night in DC, Virginia, Maryland. And I, I played in a original band where I was singing and playing electric bass. And then I also played in a rock band that was meeting every Saturday. And so I was putting all the money together to pay my rent and groceries and make music, and then that's from there I went to Boston, and that's when I kind of like zoned in on the double bass for those years. I right after Berkeley, I was offered a, a recording contract with a German label, it's a very small label called Huber Music. I decided to to do that, but that was with my trio Minsara that I co-founded with Florian Weber on piano and Zeb Ravitz on drums. And I moved to Essen, Germany, for four months. We did a recording in Germany and then toured around the country supporting the music and playing together and we were living in a little apartment together in Essen. Right before that trip, I was this is after I graduated Berkeley. I I was just living in Boston at the time, gigging and before Germany and the head of the bass department saw me and told me Jeff, I've been looking for you at this school that, that wants to have a double-base graduate assistant. And I said, well, what, what's that? And he told me that this is a, basically a job where you get paid and you get medical insurance and you get a free master's degree if you go to this program. And when I got the record deal and went to Germany, I, for those four months, I was thinking about it. Do I really want to keep going to school? Do I want to do this anymore? And I spoke to a lot of people and decided i would give it a shot so after germany i came back and then moved to florida and i got to a masters degree in florida state university and i studied with marcus roberts there and each semester i was in school there i would i went back to europe to tour right at the end of that time i uh, i met lee konitz lee heard my trio minsarra performing and he came to hear us four times and after the fourth night of checking us out, he he asked us to meet with him. We got together, and that's kind of started a relationship that is still ongoing to this day. And so, you know, most of my friends were in New York at that point. I, you know, after Berkeley, almost all of my, and I was deeply ingrained in the jazz scene there in, in Berkeley and in Boston. And everybody I knew wanted to go straight to New York. As did I. It's just I, I kind of. The idea of getting the degree, and it was was only going to take me two years, I thought, well, this is a good investment, and I should do it. So after Florida, I was thinking, I have to go to New York now. It's time to go. You know, I've got to go to New York. And I went there to look for an apartment, and um, I went to go see a concert with the great bassist, Mark Dresser. And I saw Mark perform and thought, wow, okay, this guy is amazing. I want to take a lesson with him while I'm in town. And we got to talking after the show. It turns out there wasn't time to do that. But I gave him some of my recordings and Mark got back in touch with me and said, if you have any desire to continue or further your, your formal education, I would be happy to get you anything you need to come to this school where I just started teaching. And, and I was thinking, are you kidding me? I don't want to go back to school again. Like, what? what is this? But at the same time, I I thought, wow, this is going to be – this is an incredible opportunity. Mark is just – Mark is a very special human being. That's an amazing musician, a very, very unique musician. And and I thought, okay, this is – let me follow through with this. And so I did it. They offered me a graduate assistantship. I had – you know, they were paying me and giving me health insurance to – and a free doctorate. So I I packed up yet again – and moved across the country to San Diego, California. Now, like, I'm starting over. i would never been to the West Coast before. And I'm on the West Coast, away, completely away from everybody I know. And, you know, my family, my friends, everybody I know is in New York. And um, I'm, I'm moving there. I moved there to study contemporary music. So it wasn't even jazz. I was studying modern classical music, if you will. And... I quickly fell in love with California. I thought, man, this place is incredible. The weather is just (laughs) unbelievable. And I had an incredible um, environment to live in. I I was studying really intense music, modern classical music, solo, double bass, repertoire, chamber music by 20th and 21st century composers. So it was was intense, a very intense program. And then I, I quickly got to be a very in-demand bass player in San Diego, so yet again, I start, I'm gigging jazz gigs like five nights a week, and then, so my days for, I lived in San Diego for five years, and the vast majority of that would be studying quote-unquote modern classical music all day, and then going straight to a gig and playing jazz, playing standards, and and during, and so that was also, that was a quarter system instead of semesters, and in that By this time, I had just started touring with Lee Konitz. I started recording and touring with Lee. And again, like every single quarter I was in school, so that's like a 10-week period, I had to go to Europe. I was touring with my original trio, Mensara, and and I was also touring as a member of the Lee Konitz New Quartet. And I was maintaining a teaching schedule. I was working on all my coursework, and I was touring in Europe with two different bands. And I'd made I made recordings there with with those groups. I, I mean, in was recording in Germany, recording in New York. I did a studio album of original music with Lee and Mensah together. You know, I had to take to take one quarter off because my touring was too intense. I just I wasn't I couldn't be away that much time, but. Um, During that time, I recorded um, the Lee Konitz New Quartet Live at the Village Vanguard, which is on Enya Records. And that later, actually, there's been two albums from those nights at the Vanguard. So I have two albums that were recorded there. One is called uh, the Lee Konitz New Quartet um, Live at the Village Vanguard, and the other one is Lee Konitz Standards Live Live that came out, one was 2010 and one was 2014. Um, I did Menserat, which was um, our our first on Enyas, so that was actually our second album, and Blurring the Lines, that was also with Menserat. So that was extremely, I think, I mean, I, that's my personality is that I work endlessly on things. And so my time in San Diego Ratched, you know moved that up a few notches about like how i learned to function dealing with a lot of different work and do it on a high level and and work pretty quickly um because you know i was working on a doctorate i started my dis- i was working on a dissertation i was working on performing all this modern solo double bass repertoire and writing original music and touring with lee konitz and with my trio and Working, working as a sideman, playing with singers and every, all like going between San Diego and LA, working as a sideman with people. And so when I finally finished the program, I said, okay, now I'm moving to New York. There's nothing, now I'm done with everything. I, I did all of my degrees. So I moved to New York and played in, you know, you know, all of the clubs and, um, started my own group and that's where I recorded my first solo album uh, called Secret World. And for that album I used the pianist that I played with for many years, Amin Ralph, Lorian Weber, and the great trumpet player, Ralph Alessi, and uh, one of the most amazing drummers in the world, Dan Weiss on drums. But that's when I moved to New York after going through all of these things and recording all these places with Lee and my other trio, I really, I wanted to focus on my music, my own writing, because um, I have, um I have a lot of ideas, a lot of ideas all the time. It's like, I it's, um, have to work to try to control that, the amount of stuff that I want to create. Uh, so that's where I've shifted, uh, starting around 2010 is when I decided to put my main focus on my own music and so that brings us okay well here's one more step um, sure. I thought okay I'm gonna live in New York I'm just gonna stay here until I get a professorship somewhere and during that time I was living in New York I was touring with Lee in Europe and I did a tour on the West Coast with my trio Minsera. and I we were in San Francisco. And we did it we ended up doing a master class at the Jazz School, which is also the California Jazz Conservatory. And I, I thought it was a really cool, kind of intriguing little environment and And I mentioned to the the director there how much i I liked their program. And then, about eight months later, I received an email from the director asking me if I was looking for a professorship. I thought, wow, you know, the Bay Area. I've always loved the Bay Area because it's kind of a combination of California, the open, and the the beautiful weather, and the beaches and cliffs and all that. And then, but it's also has elements of the East Coast because it has like a traditional city structure built up and with an amazing cultural scene of art, music, incredible food. And has the redwood forest. So it was kind of California meets the East meets elements of Europe. And I thought, wow man, how can I say no to that? That sounds amazing. And my wife, whom I met uh in my last year in San Diego, has a she's a Californian, so <laughs> we were in New York and then I got recruited by a school in California, she said, Yes, let's go, let's do this. So that's how I ended up in the bay. It was a, a long story. I don't know if you were Wanting that much information. No,
1: you've you, you, you hit the entire middle part of what I was going to ask you from your education to the geography to kind of the way that you've gone around. So there's going to be some holes that I'm going to fill in here. My first one is mm-hmm. obviously Lee Konitz is no one to sneeze at in the jazz world. We're talking about a legend who's amassed an amount of recordings that, were, that is stellar with people that are legendary across the board. What, do you, what, what have you learned from him? What do you continue to learn from Lee?
2: One thing that I think um, one reason Lee liked my trio Min is because we we really all believe deeply in spontaneous, in the moment improvising. That's what Lee has been doing. You know, if you think about Lee with Lenny Tristano, they recorded the very first freely ja- improvised jazz recording with Intuition in 1949. That's 10 years prior to Ornette Coleman, right, and the birth of "Quote unquote free jazz," yeah, and Lee. That spirit runs through Lee, no matter what he's playing. It's like he plays. He plays very "quote unquote" free on on standards, and not in the sense of anything being dissonant or shocking. It's it's more of like the spirit of improvising and being truly open, being in the moment being in the moment is is strong, like not coming in with preconceived ideas. And Lee is a master at that, and he's a master melodicist. You know? I, mean, I think he, he's one of the most melodic musicians in jazz history, in my opinion. And I guess some of the things that I've learned from Lee is that what Menserat, what all three of us were interested in, like being truly in the moment and improvising and being like you know, a car drives by the jazz club you're playing in and the horn honks. It's like that's part of the sound, right? You hear the, the tonality of the horn, of somebody's car horn, bouncing off of the chord that's being played on the piano. Then it's okay. Like this is part of the sounds you're hearing, the people talking or the, any any sound in the room. I guess playing with a master musician who also thinks that being in the moment like that and not not being so pre planned is okay. That I guess it legitimized that that idea for me. It it made me feel like what we were on to was um was valid, you know. Sure. Um yeah, I mean and just Lee's Lee's sense of melody, it's like um just I it's I I it deeply speaks to me. I and mean, it, it did before I even met Lee.
1: Absolutely. It's,
2: it's hard not to, to have his level of spontaneity and just beautiful melodic ideas and, and being, he's so into being kind of edited in a way like speak the, be engaged, be truly in the moment and speak the truth, you know, try to be honest about what you're hearing and, and what's happening around you. That's, that's been an amazing part of my experience with Lee. And I I guess in a way that's like some of the best stuff that I've uh, gained from being with him. Absolutely. But,
1: you know, it's, the thing about your career is there's been so much that's happened over your career. You've played with so many people like Dave Mm -hmm. Douglas, Bob Moses, you know, Lee, you've had 11 plus albums. You've been all over the place. When you sit back in the easy chair at this point and you look back on your career, do you feel pretty good about things?
2: Yes, I I I do. And I guess like if somebody was trying to tell me to be like have a healthy <laughs> mindset, it would be like to 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 openly acknowledge that more often, but I I feel good about it, but I have this like burning desire to create. I feel like there's so many things I have yet to been that I have cooking in my my head and in my in my body that's been there for for a long time and I have to get that out. I feel good about what I've done but there's thing, there's so many things that I have yet to do that I'm I'm really wanting to do. It's it's tricky to like in the current situation of the recording industry or lack thereof um it's tricky like all musicians now are really in a different place where we're responsible for like almost every aspect of creating our art and funding our art. And that, that poses some challenges. <clears throat> oh, you know, there's, I don't know if, I, I mean, I'm trying, I guess what I'm saying is yes. <laughs> yes, I feel good about what I've done, but there's so much that I have yet to do that I really have like an, an unquenchable thirst for like i need I need to do some things that are like that are like boiling inside of me
1: well let's get the to the essence of a question that may be more definitive to answer that that is the essence of the boiling and it's this: why do you love jazz
2: I love jazz because it's a place that I can be free i can be I can be in the moment uh, that's the thing that so for me personally my my music has a lot of Far-reaching influences, and in in the idiom of jazz. I mean, I think jazz is such a big, ambiguous word, and that now in 2016, at the ending of 2016, that word it's there's so many directions and so many voices in jazz that in modern jazz now that they're so drastically different it's it's really hard for any you know four letter word like jazz to cover any possible idea of directions however the spirit of the music the spirit of of spontaneous improvisation and uh, in it, you know the the ability to improvise the ability the the high level of musicianship involved in it the I think for me now it's like blending worlds as a composer. I love to create very detailed composed worlds, and jazz is a place for me that i can I can create these these worlds I can mix through composed like every note written with sections of improvisation, and that could be in a, like a traditional sense with chord changes and very um, specific structure and rules to improvise by all the way to completely freely open sections. I and mean, this is a music I feel very free to to experiment and to to make my art with without limitations.
1: Perfect. You know, the one thing about your art that you've done that's been limitless is your effect on the fans. And is there a particular comment or something that a fan has said to you that's really stuck with you throughout all these years that was pretty stellar?
2: I've had some similar comments from people that that really speak to me because it's you know kind of i feel like they they heard what i'm trying to say and um and that is that sometimes people come up to me and say i've never heard a jazz performance that spoke to me that way so emotionally that i mean that it really touched me emotionally as listening when listening to your music I had a woman, there's a famous West Coast uh, jazz venue. I, I played it a couple of years ago. It's called Bach, Dancing, and Dynamite. Um, and this woman came up to me who, she was in her 80s, I think. She told me, I've been to every single show in this club in the 50 years that it's been open. And they had everybody you can imagine, every big name in jazz history in the last 50 years has played this place. Oscar Peterson, you know, Dave Liebman, I mean from my, from the traditional Konitz, Lee played back there, Ray Brown used to play there, like everybody would come through this place. She told me I've been to every single concert in fifty years of this club's existence and no no concert has ever touched me as much as this. Wow. That was that was the greatest compliment I, I could ever possibly imagine. I, I I look for music that's honest, like you know that, um, and for me, music can be. I, I'm into so many different things, and and I'm open to hear so many things. It could be a singer songwriter. It could be a symphony, a string quartet. It Could be a jazz group. It could be a rock group. Anything that I feel is like really true, that the artist is really trying to be spontaneous, or at least just even if it's pre totally pre-planned, like something that doesn't improvise. It's just like has this quality of of sincerity and being really deeply in the moment and honest in, in its delivery, that speaks to me. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be a big band. It could be a rock band. you know, it could be a guy playing zither on the side of the road.
1: Let me ask you this. Everything's going to boil down to this. I think you've done a really great job of weaving together not only your narrative, but great stories to get to your essence. My final question about getting to your essence is this. Everyone has a version of you your family, your friends, the fans you play for, your students. But who do you think you are? When you wake up and face the world, what's your perception of who you are and how, how you live your life? Should I give you an honest answer? or a... <laughs> I, 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 All I can say is I save the easiest one for last. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, on, on, you know, you just, yeah, you know, and it doesn't have to be, just yeah, raw and honest would yeah, yeah. Would, would would work yeah.
2: Well, um, anybody who really knows me knows that I have kind of um, somewhat I have a strong like you like a, a really kind of intense sense of humor like kind of very goofy humor, but that that I think that stems from my parents because they both had really quirky sense of humor and they you know in good fun they teased me a lot and I, I but i think in like a very deeply honest answer to with a deeply honest answer to you it's like that humor helps me because i'm a deeply sensitive person and um i wake up with that every day and it's like i i choose to laugh i choose to laugh as much as i can because it it helps me like, um, I'm th- that sensitivity that sometimes I, I try to, like, put a shell on is why my music sounds the way it does. Like, the music, like if anybody really wants to know me, it's like they have to actually listen to the music because then a lot of times I show you who I am without any kind of guard. It's too much. No, that's good.
1: No, no, I like that. I really do. I like like the the build-up to it. That makes total sense to me. Yeah. Jeff, thank you for giving me your story, giving me your time. Thank you for the music. It's a great album. I hope it does really well for you. With teaching and everything you do, I appreciate it.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Jeff for his time, honesty, and story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or visit neonjazz at youtube.com. And for all things Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends.
1: on jazz